the Brown Pundits Browncast. Hey everybody, this is Razib Khan with the Brown Pundits Browncast, and I am here with Suhag Shukla. Um, can you introduce yourself, Suhag? Hi, Brown Pundit listeners. I am Suhag Shukla. Um, I'm a co-founder and now the executive director of the Hindu American Foundation. Um, Hindu American Foundation, which I will refer to as HAF and not HAF. That's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, but HAF is a 16-year-old nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy organization, um, and we seek to serve the Hindu American community. Um, some of the things that we do, we educate the public about Hinduism and Hindus. Uh, we speak out about issues affecting Hindus and other minorities worldwide. And we also build bridges with institutions and individuals who are committed to the promotion of dignity, mutual respect, and pluralism. And all of our work um, is really geared towards ensuring not only the well-being of Hindus, um, but the well-being of all people and the planet, uh, because uh, you know this understanding of the divinity of the planet is very much a part of the Hindu ethos. Um, We've worked on a range of issues, some we're well known for, some not. Um, our work, I think, in K through 12 uh, public textbooks and how Hinduism is taught to American school children is one that's gotten a lot of media attention, some accurate, some not. So I look forward to discussing that with you. We've done a lot of work with the media in trying to improve the understanding of Hinduism. Um, we've done work uh, in terms of civil rights and working on issues such as the separation of church and state or the prevention of hate crimes and globally on human rights and ensuring that um, religious and other minorities are able to enjoy their full freedoms as humans. Um, we've also worked on environmental issues and a whole other slew of things. All right. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great introduction. So are you, I'm actually kind of curious because um, you did talk about ethos. Um, what is a Hindu to you? You know, I mean, I mean, I, I, I you know, this isn't going to be, a, I'm not really interested in like the deep philosophy of religion, but I mean, I guess we kind of need to define the terms here, right? Um, like, what do you think a Hindu is? What do, does your organization have a very specific idea? Is a Hindu just someone who says they're a Hindu, you know? I, well, it's a little bit of, of, of everything, right? It's obviously someone who says they're Hindu, um, but, you know, absent that opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone about religion and what they identify as, if, if the, you know, the general public is trying to understand what a Hindu is, I'd say that um, a Hindu is probably someone who individually or collectively um, within a community is inspired by the Vedas or other Hindu sacred texts. Um, a Hindu is someone who accepts both religious pluralism and religious freedom, meaning that they accept um, the freedom to pursue different paths to understanding kind of our purpose in life and, and our relationship with something greater or, or not greater, um, that that's the freedom to hold different perspectives um, on the ultimate reality and to follow different ways of worshiping that ultimate reality, if you so choose. Um, I think a Hindu also sees um, an existence or that that existence itself has an underlying unity. Um, a Hindu would understand that life is shaped by the laws of karma and reincarnation. And, and we can get into that if you want, but I know you've had guests on before um, who've probably delved mm. into 
karma theory and things like that. But baseline, I think a Hindu is someone who holds um, dharma as kind of the compass uh, of of their way of being. It's um, dharma has so many. It has layered meanings. It can mean duty. It can mean righteous action, right living, um, the essential nature of things, uh, balance, cosmic order. You know, there's there's a whole slew of words that you can use. But this, to me, at um, the heart of it, is a way of being that's conducive to spiritual growth and interconnection um, with all of existence. Okay, so I mean, I guess as I'm listening to you, you know, you you do emphasize or not emphasize. I mean, you note the spiritual aspect, and obviously, you know, someone who reveres the Vedas and you know treasures, um, you know, various Hindu religious philosophical, you know, thought, um, whatever particular tradition or or you know sage that they follow, that that makes sense. I guess I'm getting at um, this idea is like, do you think that there could be someone who's a cultural Hindu? So I know of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, so, so, you know, I'll give you a concrete example, you know, without naming names, but, you know, I have a friend and, (laughs) I mean, um, he's he's a really interesting Hindu to me because um, he is a big booster of eating meat and even beef to get more muscular, but, I mean, he still identifies as Hindu, Um, you know, he's from a Brahmin family and it's important for them to to still reiterate that and, and, uh, but, I mean, you know, that's his definition. I think his his ideas in, on God are more deist. You know, he's not an atheist, but um, you know, this is a guy who identifies as Hindu, and yet he's eating a burger. I mean, is is that part of the broad? You know, I'm going to use the word church, but like the kind of like the broad church of what you guys are representing um, as a nonprofit for Hindu Americans. Well, I think that one of one of our responsibilities in um, kind of being, um, I don't want to say the public face, but certainly a public face or at least a resource on Hinduism is to try to capture the diversity of beliefs and practices um, within the tradition. And there's a spectrum. There are um, traditions within the Hindu family that meat is very much a part of their daily lives. And it's also sometimes part of ritual worship. So, um, you know, I don't think that there's any litmus test in that sense of what is a Hindu? Are you within the family or outside the family? I think that's part of the beauty of of Hinduism in that um, the focus is not so much on dogma, but on on a search for truth um, and um, kind of navigating navigating those questions um, within whatever familial context we have, whatever social context we have. Um, And so, you know, not only can I think a person be culturally Hindu, but I think, um, I don't think you have to be of Indian descent uh, to identify as Hindu Mm -hmm. uh, because, because it is, it's a, it's a way of being. Um, It's, it's also an attitude um, but it's also a religion. <laughs> um, and, and the reason, you know, we oftentimes um, butt heads uh, with folks who say, well, Hinduism is not a religion, certainly not in the Abrahamic sense. But I believe that it's important to identify um, Hindus as a member of a, a religious grouping uh, because of the way structures are set up um, to protect certain rights. So if we keep, you know, our our coat hung on, we're a way of life and not a religion. Well, then where is a Hindu supposed to turn to if they're being persecuted or if they're being discriminated against? So um, 
That's maybe a long-winded mm-hmm. answer to that question, but mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I think that's fine. I mean, it, it requires <laughs> some elaboration, I think, um, to d- define the terms. It's not like, uh, I mean, I think um, if 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 you were running a nonprofit that was, you know, like something like Presbyterian hunger relief. I don't think we'd have to have a long des- discussion of what Presbyterian meant and what hunger is, you know? Um, so it's like very like narrow and specific, like your organization, I mean, it would be like the, you know, a Christian American foundation. I mean, what, what, what does Christian mean or Jewish, you know, the anti, the anti-defamation league, for example, is very, um, you know, clear about what it wants to do, but it has a very, very broad view of, of obviously what being Jewish is like, you can be an atheist, you can be an Orthodox Jew, but it's about the Jewish people. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I, I do want to talk about Tulsi Gabbard later. So I, it, it's, it's pretty obvious that being Hindu, you don't have to be of Indian descent. Um, well, I mean, you can talk to Balinese people about that too. Right. Um, absolutely. Vietnamese. I mean, yeah. the, you know, the Hindu uh, diaspora was um, far and wide historically and continues to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, you, you know, I, I did want to get, get into the ethnic aspect. So, uh, the word Hindu, um, obviously, I mean, it comes originally from Persian, right? Or it's, you know, it's a Persianization of Sindhu. And so it's just referred to Indians, you know, like right. of whatever, you know, just people that lived in the Indian subcontinent. And then it became more religiously identified as a lot of people in Indian subcontinent, South Asia became Muslim or Christian and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I mean... I know that, like, you know, a typical, say, Pakistani Muslim, like, if you say they're a Hindu, they would kind of look at you like, what does that mean? But, I mean, do you think at some point it could be so expansive where just someone of South Asian descent in general? And I'll get to the point about, like, the word South Asian and Indian because sure. there, there was a question about that. But could be Hindu as well because, you know, I mean, you know, my family's from a Muslim background. I'm not religious at all. But, you know, I know that, you know, like, Arabs and Iranians, they, they look at South Asian Muslims and they still kind of think of them as Hindu because they look the same to them. Does that make sense? Right, right. Well, I think, you know, I I go back to when I was learning Spanish and, you know, when I had to um, define myself uh, by my ethnicity, I believe, and and don't quote me on my Spanish because it's been years, but I remember the word was Hindu to say that I was Indian. I wasn't necessarily um, referring to my religious identity, but an ethnic identity. So I do think that from the outward in, looking from the outward in, uh, there are many um, cultures and communities who associate Indian with Hindu. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the points that we emphasize is that um, not all Indians are Hindu, and not all Hindus are Indian, <laughs> and so. Um, you know, there, there's definitely this perception, but I think that that also stems from people not knowing about the tradition, not recognizing, um, you know, that there's uh, a philosophical framework or that there's rituals or there's different things that differ vastly from other things that they might associate with as religion. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I want to get into the semantics. Um, there was a question about... Um, Apparently, um, you know, I don't know this for a fact. This is a question from a reader. Um, uh, the HAF uh, was lobbying for California schools to use the term Indian rather than South Asian to refer to the region. Like, do you have a response to that? Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, our stance, we even started a um, social media campaign 
um, called Hashtag Donor Race India. Um, and part of it was that South Asia, when we're talking about the history of the region from, say, like 3000 BCE uh, to even pre-independence, uh, we were not talking necessarily about South Asia. It was an, an anachronistic term um, to apply to what was really being taught is Indic civilization. Um, so uh, that was one issue, is that it wasn't accurate. The other issue was, or, or point of contention for us was, that from ancient times, and you can look to the historical records of, of Chinese travelers or Iranian and Persian travelers who are coming to India, and they're referring to the subcontinent as kind of a certainly internally diverse, but a geographical and cultural unit. Um, it was seen as as a civilization unto itself. Um, and then the last point, and so that's where, again, India would have been, or Indic would have been more accurate than South Asia. And then, then the third major point is that China, Japan, Egypt, Greece, all of these cultures were referenced by the the country's names. It was ancient China or ancient Chinese culture. Certainly, they weren't the modern nation states that we know today. Um, Japan, same thing, Egyptian culture or civilization. So India was, I think, being isolated partially as a result of um, what we kind of refer to as South Asianists. They tend to be professors in the liberal arts who also... Uh, tend to be, you know, they reflect kind of a, a, a certain political, um, a political perspective uh, that doesn't, we didn't feel had a place in K through 12 education about Indic civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a little bit about this. And um, I'm just gonna, I mean, I think the listeners will probably get a sense. I pretty much agree with you on this point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, even if you were a uh, a Muslim from Punjab, uh, you know, in 1910, you're Indian. That's how people yeah. would view you. That's how, that's what they would say. There's these Pakistani, all these other subnational or national identities are, are relatively recent. And so right. um, I think, I think you have, uh, frankly, honestly, I'll agree with you there. Um, right. I, I do and want to yeah. say, I'll just say that, look, if we want to, um, you know, bring out a next generation of American students who are well-placed for, you know, a globalized society and, and ready for competition um, that's, quite frankly, well beyond the borders of their city. Um, they need to have an understanding, an accurate understanding of, of history. I, I don't know if history can ever really be accurate in, in the sense, but th my point is that, look, it, the, area of historical studies is ever evolving. I think public schools have to stay on top of that. The other thing was that, you know, just for accuracy and for kids to understand, we were very supportive of parenthetical information where it could say ancient India, parentheses, um, which would include modern day Pakistan, Bangladesh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, this whole notion that we were somehow pushing against or, or trying to, um, I don't know, exert some sort of dominant narrative over Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, I think was just kind of, um, I don't know, a straw man. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so I have another question. This is kind of related to like a reader question, but I was kind of going to ask you anyway. Um, you know, I, so, uh, you know, I don't, and you probably don't know too much about me. So I, you know, I, I'm Bangladeshi American, although I just say I'm Bengali mostly because I barely lived in Bangladesh. I was born there, but it's such a young country, you know, anyway, that's, that's my personal opinion. Um, you know, but, um, so I don't really know too much about, say, like, the caste system, I guess. I mean, I do know what I read in books, okay? But, you know, I don't know, like, personally too much. And um, so, I mean, I'll give you an analogy. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the media about people in India, and to a lesser extent the United States, but that's a kind of a separate question, talking about, like, colorism in India and um, being being dark-skinned and, and stuff like that, what that's like, you know... Eh, and what's interesting, though, is it's very rare that you hear someone in the Indian media talk about being light-skinned. It's just, they're light-skinned. They don't talk about it. I mean, it's a privilege they have. It. They don't ever mention it. They're like, you know, like, I have this job as, like, a presenter on TV because I'm way lighter than the typical Indian. I mean, they, they don't say that, right? So um, there, there's very few, it's something you can see on them, okay? Um, you know, it's like, it would be like saying that, you know, there's, like, um, prejudice based on your size and you're obese. Well, thin people aren't going to be like, well, I'm thin, you know? Um, so with caste, though, I also feel like with uh, with Indian Americans, and I know mostly Indian Americans, and I, I'm getting to know more Indians from India recently just because, you know, with globalization and immigration and stuff, it's bringing a lot of people here and all that stuff, right? And so, the, you know, the caste discussion is like there's this academic discussion and, and it's pretty um, – you know, cardboard cutout. I don't know. I feel like it's it's pretty coarse because we got like you know these Varna groups, and then there's the Jati groups. And, and I'm a geneticist, so I actually know how caste works genetically. That's that's where that's where I'm looking at it. But um, they feel like you know um, it is it, depending on your generation, your background. It is present even among Indian Americans, and and people don't talk about it. And you know, if you ask someone directly kind of they know what to say let's be frank unless they're uh you know very new immigrants and then sometimes they'll say things that oh you you haven't like understood what you're supposed to say you know um and like i'm not saying that um people can't be proud of what their background is obviously um but i guess what i'm getting at is do you think does does haf have any position on okay like is cast is jati is this constitutive? Is this an essential part of Hinduism? Or is it kind of a contingent thing? And obviously, there are people who convert to Hinduism from other non-Indian ethnicities. They don't have caste, right? So, I mean, what is your view on, like, how to deal with this issue now and going forward into the future as a Hindu in America? Because obviously, India is a whole different thing, right? Yeah, we definitely have a stance on this. Um, And uh, so, I'll first start with that you know, undergirding our, all of our work in this realm is one, uh, to acknowledge that caste-based discrimination does occur. Um, uh, and, and many people continue to suffer and have suffered. Uh, but the second point, um, is that this is a social problem and not one that's rooted in Hindu teachings. And in fact, um, you know, any sort of discriminatory behavior, um, is in contradiction um, of of core Hindu teachings um, in terms of um, you know, and we back in gosh, what year was it? Two thousand ten um, came out uh, with a report 
uh, called Not Casting Cast, Seeking an End to Caste-Based Discrimination in India, um, talking about a lot of these issues, um, about how, uh, well, one is that caste is a complex topic. It has evolved over time. It's not something that's static. That's one of our issues with the way that caste is even taught in um, K through 12 textbooks. I should be more specific that 6th through 8th or 9th through 12th, uh, I don't think you really cover much in um, kindergarten through fifth grade, but um, but that's a tangent. Uh, but it's it's essentialized. It's, it's portrayed, first of all, inaccurately as a... Um, Inaccurately, as well as without context, it's portrayed as a static system, one that's rooted in religion and one that um, continues essentially as it's portrayed as this kind of pyramid um, through today. And, and I just think that there's far more of a conversation to be had uh, about caste. I do, you know, I, I oftentimes um, talk about my own experience that growing up as a Hindu American in the San Francisco Bay Area, I actually was not aware of what our caste was. And it wasn't until ninth grade world history when my teacher asked me, what caste are you, um, that I had to go home and ask my parents. So at least in the way that that I grew up and, and both sides of my family, um, grandparents were involved in the independence movement. My paternal or maternal grandfather was a Gandhian. So I don't know how much that played into it, but um, caste was definitely not up front and center. Um, the second thing is that because of the way that caste is taught um, as kind of this religious teaching, and it's, it's emphasized to a point where, you know, a unit on Hinduism where there may only be like, say, 10 pages in a 300 or 400 page textbook, of those 10 pages, almost five might be dedicated um, to this Hindu caste system. And there will be no mention of the fact that caste practices span across all religious communities in India. Um, there will be no um, discussion about other core tenets of, of Hindu philosophy that might at least get a critical student to think, well, wait a minute, if Hinduism believes that um, every individual is a manifestation of the divine, how can they then see, you know, this hierarchy? Um, there's no distinction between the concepts of Varna, which is probably I see it as one of the oldest examples of personality type psychology um, that drew from metaphysical and philosophical concepts such as Triguna theory, like Sattva, Rajas, and um, Tamas, and also Karma theory, and Jati, which it sounds like you've done a lot of work on. So there's no distinction between this religious idea, a social reality, and maybe at times when religious elites used one to justify the other. Um, the other point is that there are a lot of jati traditions. First of all, they're not textual in terms of these traditions being passed down. Um, you know, you might just learn that, oh, our family worships this particular deity, which happens to be the deity that only that jati might worship. Um, or there might be certain foods that you prepare. So this notion that jati um, is only the route to social discrimination but the other side of it is that it did provide social cohesion and and a and a, and a, a what's it called a, a social net for many people over the years. So I think that we need to have more constructive conversations about caste and 
and and also acknowledge that people misused these things with these you know these notions of perceived hierarchies and have really um, hurt other people and today politics economics and other things complicated even more so uh, so you know historically where one jati could be associated with a particular Varna in one region might be something else in another, or even within the region, changes from being, say, a, I don't know, a royal uh, jati to being a farming jati in a span of a hundred years. So it's there's a complexity that's completely ignored, um, and I just don't think that we're preparing students well, or or us, just as you know, members of society well, um, mm-hmm. if we just remain ignorant about all of these different concepts. All right. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to follow up with you on this, but uh, I do want to just, just for the listener really quickly, because I think we jumped into it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so Varna is just for the listener. It's like, you know, Brahmin and the warrior cast and, you know, the farmer trader cast, all that stuff. These like big, broad yeah. categories. Right, and then four broad categories. Yeah. And then Jati is like all the thousands of different communities that are endogamous across India. And that's why, that's why Shuhag is saying like, you know, some, the 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 latter integrates some is into the varna system so you know it's it's not as like quite that straightforward um when it's actualized on the ground now i i do have to ask about caste again and and, and i'll move on from this topic it's not like super interesting to be honest but um you know non non hindu groups do have caste right um um my personal experience which is not like extensive um you know I haven't done an ethnography of it though is that in the United States, among and I'm going to use the word South Asian because I'm including all the different, you know, terms or the nationalities, uh, you know, most of the people are from like privileged backgrounds in general, um, back home, wherever they are now, you know. But um, I do feel like caste is still lasting more, and I do agree. With, actually, I've heard that um, your story of like having to ask your parents. That's actually a relatively common story I have heard. Um, they learn, learn about it in high school, then they have to go home and ask, you know? Um, but I, I do think that it does persist more among Hindu communities than among the non-Hindu, even though both groups obviously started um, with caste-like, you know, communal identities. And I, I mean, are you trying, I guess what I'm saying is, are you trying to deny that these I mean, I'm not going to use the word Varna because, like, that's kind of like a more technical term. But like this, this caste-like feature is partly um, a consequence of some aspects of the generally common religious beliefs of many Hindus about hierarchy and different groups of people. You know, at the beginning of time, I guess. You know, like the laws of Manu, that sort of stuff. Um, like, I mean, are you saying that that's actually like disputable? And I know there are people who identify as Hindu who are actually very anti-caste. So obviously. That's the thing. But I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, but then there's other people who are Hindu and they think that, you know, like this is in the codes, like this is like how it's been. And it's not just a coincidence. Like it's, it's, it's like religiously sanctioned. Like, would you deny those people their own opinion on that? Cause I mean, that's, I think the conflict that we have with sure. some of those people are, are Frank in the United States when they just come from India and like Indian Americans who grew up here are like, whoa, 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 you know? Right. Well, okay, so you've you've given me a lot of <laughs> a lot of questions. So one um, one thing is that you know for someone, well, I'll just go to the Bhagavad Gita for instance. Um, you know, one of the most widely read sacred texts amongst 
not just Hindus, but even non-Hindus read the Bhagavad Gita. It, the Bhagavad Gita is very clear that one's varna, and we're not even talking about what social group you might have been born into. You know, my, your father's a doctor, you are now a doctor's son. Doesn't mean you're going to be a doctor. But back in the day, in 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 medieval um, societies across the world, generally speaking, you took on the occupation of your father. But when it comes to Varna or this personality type psychology, I, you know, what the Gita says is that your Varna is based on your actions as well as your innate tendencies and your aptitude. So nowhere does it say that it's based on the occupation of your father or what role your father or mother play in society. So I think Hindu scripture and, and with, with Hindu scripture, not to get too into the weeds, um, there are two primary categories of Hindu scripture. You have Shruti, which is considered the eternal teachings of Hinduism, that these are core principles, universal principles that uh, that withstand uh, context and time and, and are, are timeless in their applicability. And then you have Smriti, which does change by time and context. So when, you know, people oftentimes talk about the Manu Smriti, I would, first of all, question what the influence of it was uh, across pan-Hindu um, society, one. Um, but second, was it uh, prescriptive? Uh, what's the word? Was it prescriptive or was it descriptive? I don't know that um, there's um, there's any sort of consensus on that. But um, I don't think that you would find a single Hindu spiritual leader today, um, or or over over the past hundred years, say um, that we have record of, that would say that this is um, birth based and core to. Um, Hindu teachings. In fact, you're going to find more statements of spiritual leaders condemning uh, discrimination on the basis of uh, occupation and birth. Now, is it still, does it still uh, form uh, parts of people's identities? Sure. But I think that we have to go back to what I said earlier, is that caste is a complex topic. Yes, bad things have happened in um, the name of Cast because of perceived hierarchies and um, and I think we should also mention that it's not just you know Brahmins or Kshatriyas discriminating against so-called lower caste, but there's also intra-caste perceived hierarchies. So within um, you know what India deems scheduled castes, there are these perceived notions of discrimination and um, tensions and violence that occur. So um, this is not to say that. Certain caste identities um, might still inform people um, of their identity. I, I do also see that um, caste does often come up in the um, context of marriage, uh, where you know, out of left field, and this is this has happened to some of my friends, where they didn't really grow up caste conscious, but then when it came time to marriage, all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, we have to find, you know, a Patel boy of this particular group, and you know. All, all the other details um, that were not necessarily present in their learning about Hindu traditions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I will say, um, you know, 
And, I and temples. I mean, uh, just sorry, one more mm-hmm. thing. Like mm-hmm. temples uh, here in the United States have really been a unique phenomenon where at least I'm a product of the 70s. And, you know, when I was growing up, I actually didn't go to my first Hindu temple till I don't know, the age of five or six. And the first one I actually went to was um, the Hare Krishna temple. So I was a little confused because I only knew uh, the religious practices and the traditions and the pujas in an Indian familial context. And then all of a sudden I see, you know, uh, a bunch of non-Indian people, white Hindus jumping around. And I just did not understand that context. It was as I grew older that I began understanding about the diversity of of the tradition. Uh, But Hindu temples are really kind of an interesting phenomenon in that they have, in many instances, transcended linguistic differences, deity differences, as well as caste differences. I don't know that, you know, a temple is checking to see what caste a person is. Um, everyone is welcome. You can be a Shaivite and a Vaishnavite or, or a, a Durga devotee, and you see all of them worshiping side by side, um, where it's the the Hindu worship and the Hindu rituals that are bringing them together um, and not um, not necessarily linguistic or, or any other sort of identification. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, before we move on from caste, I, I just like put in my two cents real quick. I can't speak, I can't speak to the religious aspect, obviously, so I'm not religious. And ultimately, like, it's not my concern. I'm not religious, right? I'm not going to arbitrate that, right? Um, I will, I will, I will say that um, I don't see in um, non, non um, Indian groups, the same sort of population genetic structure due to caste and jati uh, that I see in Indians that are Hindu. So like Balinese or Cham Hindus in Vietnam um, don't exhibit the same things, obviously. And then you do see this caste jati structure among non-Hindus, like Muslims uh, in Pakistan, so for example. So part of that is that I'm wondering if this is just something about South Asia, Indian subcontinent, um, and then as people leave, obviously, you're not in the Indian subcontinent, that culture doesn't apply anymore. And it seems like it's fading, like it is in the United States. Right. And that, again, points to me points um, in the direction of it being a social practice, as opposed to a religious practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so speaking of religious practices and religion in the United States, um, you know, we have Tulsi Gabbard running. We have Kamala Harris's mother is was a you know Indian American Hindu. Um, I feel like um, you know we have people in Congress who are you know Hindu or Indian. You know that sort of background. I feel like you know Hindus and Indians in general are much more visible in American culture today um, than they were when HAF started. Um, how do you like? I mean, how does that affect you? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's only good. Um, uh, you know. When we founded HAF, our kind of intention was, how do we build off the institutions that have been built um, and established by our parents' generation, right? Those were the institutions of learning and uh, of culture, of of religion. And it was, in some sense, um, kind of inward facing, right? How are we going to preserve and pass on um these these traditions. And so when we started, what we realized is like, okay, we have this amazing culture, this amazing tradition, but 
our friends don't understand us. <laughs> and so, um, you know, how are we, how are we going to address that divide um, between what we know to be our tradition um, and what other people understand our tradition to be? And so um, there were no Hindu American congressmen, um, let alone, you know, people in the media um, who identified as Hindu American. And so it's nice to have kind of, I don't want to call it brand ambassadors, but I will, <laughs> um, to have, you know, kind of high profile folks who are proud of their tradition. I think it's important for the next generation uh, because, you know, I don't know that the first generation of Hindus necessarily wore their religion on their sleeve, um, but in a post 9-11 era when so many people are, um, you know, more willing to share, um, I think it's important that we do too. And um, who better than, you know, people who are contributing to American society as Americans, whether it's uh, members of the media or um, elected officials. Mm. Yeah, I will, I will say, like, you know, being a brown person growing up in the United States, the, uh, I mean, I grew up before 9-11, so it was a little different. Um, uh, you know, people would always ask me if I worshipped right. cows. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I would be like... Um, I don't know. I had two tacks. Sometimes I would say I was not a Hindu, but then that would open up even more questions. <laughs> and so sometimes I would just say no. <laughs> right, exactly. um, I mean, I so, still remember the day after Indiana Jones um, and the Temple of Doom and that, you know, that priest, I think he ate monkey brains and, and just the, <laughs> the horror um, with which some of my, my classmates were, were looking at me. So those were kind of the media presentations um, back then. And, and we certainly didn't have um, people running for president um, who had um, Indian or South Asian names, sounding names. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, um, I guess I should mention Liz Warren's uh, daughter is married to someone of Indian heritage, so she has, you know, half Indian grandchildren. And, well, and Tim, Ra- Tim Ryan's that. a meditator, um, you know, and okay. he has, um, I've, the few times that I've met him, it's been with um, folks from Art of Living, and uh, that is uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar's um, Kriya Yoga, um, which is a uh, meditation methodology. So um, you see this, this influence everywhere. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's more overt. Yeah, and so um, speaking of influence, um, there's this whole thing of uh, you know Hinduism and India and the rise of Hindu nationalism. Where um, you know I'm going to set. I mean, I don't know too much about it. I know some some stuff about it, but uh, apparently there was a guy um, who was a kind of a neo-Nazi or like some sort of white nationalist from Scandinavia who went to a Hindu conference in India that was organized by a Hindu nationalist group or, you know, conservative Hindu group. And someone wrote an article about how Hindu nationalists are neo-Nazis because, and so my, my own perspective on this, I would just say is like, I'm sure these Hindu guys, Hindu people, men and women did not know who this person mm-hmm. was and did not care. Right. <laughs> but um, from the perspective of the media, all that matters is that one white person there is bad. And, right. you know, so there was like, <laughs> This contagion where, like, you know, I've seen it where in the media today, like, people say Hindu nationalism is white supremacist. And 
I'm just like, but they're right. brown, you know. Anyway, yeah. uh, you know, it's, you're, yeah. you're, I, you know, I oftentimes, um, well, I've talked about this in terms of just the sloppiness of terms like nationalist um, and, and context, right? Like, how is a South Asian using the word nationalist as opposed to someone who might be very familiar with World War II and what German nationalism led to? Um, you know, at that time, India was under British rule, and I don't know how much access they had necessarily to, you know, that sort of understanding of the geopolitical context of of what happened during World War II as a result of nationalism. And then there's pl- plenty of other European examples. But oftentimes, even words like right wing and left wing are just kind of thrown around, um, and they mean different things in different contexts. And, and I think it's important to understand that, um, because if you have an interest in, in understanding the world, um, you, you have to know that. And, and this is, I think it's, it goes all around, um, you know, you're seeing an increasing number of, um, Indians in India who, um, automatically are like, oh, we're, you know, we're for Trump, um, because they see, okay, in India, we're right. So in America, this is right, without necessarily understanding that the philosophical, the political philosophies are oftentimes different um, for left and right in different places. Um, you know, I've pointed out, at least in the Indian context, um, I know the American context far better, but, you know, because we're the Hindu American Foundation, we're oftentimes asked these questions um, simply because there is a Hindu party or a party that identifies as overtly Hindu um, that's now in power in India. But, you know, uh, LGBT issues, um, transgender inclusion, environment and climate change being moral imperatives, these are not necessarily platform um, that we would associate with the right in America, but they are part of the political platform of the right in India. So um, I think it's important to, you know, take more of a deep dive into these issues. Um, I think we'd have a better informed foreign policy for our country um, when we're dealing um, with whatever it is, whether it's, um, you know, economics, trade, um, security, or or any of the variety of um, aspects that our foreign policy touches. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I, I agree with you. So I, yeah, I'm going to ask the question from a reader. Um, and I'll just like stipulate by saying, it's, I, honestly, I personally think it's kind of usually a BS question, not all the time. <laughs> I love BS questions. No, Go ahead. I mean, I'm just gonna, you know, but I mean, this is a question I should ask. I mean, so the whole like issue of like sharing a platform with the VHP and the World Hindu Congress and all this stuff, like what's your, I mean, I don't know about you speaking for your organization or just yourself, like what's your statement in reaction to that? I don't know what, where, like, what's the context of that? Like, whether Hindus should be able to come together, or I, I mean, if they're talking specifically about the World Hindu Congress. I mean, I, you know, honestly, like, I haven't done too much research on this, because, okay. but uh, okay. I, I think what what they're getting at is, I'm sure that there have been instances where someone associated with your organization was at some event where there was an organization they perceived to be you know, a far right radical Hindu organization. And so do you guys, like, I mean, how does it work with like vetting platforms? You know, let me just, let me just put my perspective in here. Like, you know, I, I write sometimes for publications and I obviously there's going to be a point where 
okay, I'm not going to write for this publication. There's just all this weird stuff, you know? Sure. But on the, on the other hand, like, there are a lot of publications where it's like, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with, like, the major, like, I've written for The Guardian. I've written for The National Review, you know? They sure. are very different. So my issue with platforming is, like, you know, you can't just assume that other people are going to necessarily agree or even not be offended by other things if you're in the same room. Like these sorts of, right. like, it, 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 you can't let other people control you. That's honestly my opinion. And, yeah. you know, you have your own internal decisions of where you draw the line. Like, how do you feel about that? Or how does HAF feel about I, that sort of thing? I agree with you. Look, we are nonpartisan and, and that's across the board. We will work, um, you know, we get essentially, this is how I know we're doing our job right. When we get criticized by folks on the further end of the left and the further end of the right, depending on what the issue is, that means we're kind of being the adults in the room and being open to ideas um, and open to conversation and learning. That does not mean meeting someone does not necessarily mean that you are condoning their behavior or their viewpoint. But, you know, this notion that simply being in the same room as someone whose opinion a particular segment disagrees with, somehow um, now you are holding that opinion as well. I just think that, you know, that just, it's not, it's not how the world works. Um, it might work that way in Twitter, um, <laughs> on Twitter rather, but I just, I don't think that we're going to necessarily get to the root causes of issues um, like poverty or discrimination or, you know, environmental issues. If we hold on to this attitude, like, okay, um, you know, I'm not going to come to the table with this person. Um, you know, when when the when President Trump um, came into office, you know, we were getting a lot of pushback um, from certain segments of the South Asian community, like, how can you um, even engage this president um, now? Just be, if there's an issue where you would engage the office of the president, it shouldn't matter who's there. You got to keep, the issues aren't changing. The challenges are not changing. You've got to engage whoever you need to engage. In the same way, we've worked with organizations like um, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, the ACLU, um, Center for Inquiry, which is with a, an, you know, a secular humanist mm -hmm. atheist group. Yep, I know. Yeah. So, you know, we'll work with anyone. If there's a shared concern and there's a possibility that we can come up with a shared solution, we'll work with them. So, and, and the other thing is that I just don't buy into this notion that any one person is all good or all evil. Every single one of us have aspects of our personality that other people may not like or abhor. And we also have aspects of our personality that that are good. So this notion that you're either good or bad, with us or against us, I just don't see that as a constructive um, framework to work within or from. Mm. Well, so, you know, I was going to ask you another question about um... – I don't know, something about uh, uh, minorities in India and Bangladesh. And, and, I'll, and I'll get to that if we have time. But your your comment, actually, um, I want to ask a kind of like more of an impromptu question. Um, you know, I am, um, you know, I'm definitely center right, definitely on the right, um, you know, uh, 
yeah, kind of Republican, I guess. But uh, so, you know, I don't know. It's parties are parties. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I have beliefs. I have principles. That's a different issue. Um, and what I've noticed over the last, um, you know, 10 to 15 years is I've had friends that are centrist, even like moderate Republicans who've become extremely far left over the last couple of years who are Indian American. And, um, you know, it tends to be Indian American, you know, like born or raised here. And, um, you know, I don't know your politics, honestly. Um, I don't really care. But I, what do you have like the similar observation that Indian Americans have gotten much further left, much more vocal in terms of, you know, the standard social justice rhetoric. I mean, we're not talking about, I mean, like someone like Ro Khanna, okay? This is like Silicon Valley business, business Republican. And um, I feel like now he's more of a social justice guy. So, I mean. I think it, I think it depends um, on, uh, it really does depend uh, on a range of things, age, professional background, um, where you are in the United States. So, you know, if I'm talking to someone on the coasts, and and so I don't think that the Indian American or even South Asian American community is that different from mainstream America uh, in terms of seeing kind of the the coasts um, drifting further left and and other places drifting further right. Uh, I do find that for many first-generation Indian Americans, uh, U.S.-India relations still plays um, kind of central to which uh, party they're going to be supportive of. But I've also seen a pragmatism um, amongst, you know, we call them uncles and aunties, but a pragmatism to say, okay, well, I'm, you know, registered Democrat, but I believe that this person who's a Republican is going to be better for U.S. India, and they would, you know, kind of be a zigzag voter in that sense, even though they might be registered in a particular way. Um, so I, I think there's a number of factors uh, that uh, do inform, um, you know, voting patterns and things like that. I will also say, though, that um, within social justice circles, what I have found is that as a Indian and as a Hindu, oftentimes we're not welcome. And uh, so I've seen a similar uh, pattern uh, for for many Jews. Um, I don't know if you recall, um, there was a issue where someone I think had a, a rainbow star of David mm-hmm. um, at a parade, I believe it was in Chicago and she was asked to leave. So there have been situations um, where, uh, you know, we are in South Asian circles and um, we've been asked not to participate or or uninvited from participation because we're Hindu, um, we are associated with right wing Hindu politics or that we engaged with um, a Republican office or whatever the case may be. And so um, that has been my experience, at least in some social justice circles, is that there's less um, tolerance for, you know, allowing people to engage with different sorts of people. There's more of a litmus test. And in the same way, I would say that obviously as a as a brown person, I don't know necessarily that I'm going to be invited into some, you know, far right um, conference or something like that. 
Yeah, but they might come to your conference. <laughs> they might. <laughs> All right. So true. So so let, let me um you know let me brass tacks let me like be a little tougher on you because I think people are going to complain that I'm being too nice. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a question, basically, you know, I'm just going to read it verbatim because I actually don't know all the details here. Um, why does the HAF seem to stand at odds with the great bulk of respected national and international human rights organizations, NGOs, and academics, um, labeling them as conspiratorial Marxists for condemning intolerance in India. Yet the HAF is vocal in raising awareness for such intolerance faced by Hindus in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Okay, That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, and, and my answer is um, we don't. Um, what we're asking for is fairness in understanding um, ground realities, no matter where we are. So in the context of India, what has oftentimes happened is that there's been kind of, um, and this might be going into the weeds a little bit, but um, you know, similar to some of the uh, the BDS movements that we're seeing on college campuses, there's also been activism um, that that kind of mirrors that um, with India um, in the crosshairs, and so uh, there is kind of broad brushing of incidents that are occurring in India. And too often, um, the, you know, in inner religious violence, um, or tensions are portrayed as if Hindus are always, um, the aggressors, um, are Hindus aggressors in, in, you know, incidents in India? Absolutely. But they are not the only aggressors. There are times when um, they're victims. And so there's no religious community in India that can be absolved from having perpetrated religious violence, nor is any religious community immune from being vic a victim of, of um, interreligious violence. And so in all of our work, um, as it relates to India, um, it's it's trying to bring about that context because any sort of uh, conclusion drawn uh, about the situation in India is going to reflect on Hindu Americans. So if people come away with the understanding that, oh, all these Hindus in India are just attacking religious minorities and um, it's not safe for a religious minority in India, um, that's going to affect how you know, my dad might be viewed by his neighbors or how, you know, someone living in Georgia um, is going to be uh, viewed by his um, colleagues. So it's important that um, Americans have more nuanced and factual understandings of ground realities. I'm not asking that we whitewash um, when bad things happen, but I think we need to have um, a, a greater detail in our understanding uh, of what goes on there. I think also um, it's important for us as um, members of a democracy to understand how other democracies work. So something that I find interesting um, is I personally uh, am a proponent of the American form of secularism, which is um, in an ideal sense, a separation between church and state. While in India, the model has been more of accommodation. So when, um, you know, U.S. lawmakers talk about religious freedom in India, um, they're not necessarily basing 
their comments on a full picture? Do they know that there are separate family laws, which I don't necessarily think is great for women, um, for Christians and Muslims, as opposed to any other religious tradition? Do they know that there's oftentimes quotas at the state level? I think all of these things need to be um, at the forefront of of businesses, of policymakers, um, to get a better understanding of of our neighbors around the world. Hmm. So... Do you think that the HAF always has to be kind of focused on India in a way? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think, well, so let me let me answer that um, in two parts. One is that India is a sacred homeland. All of our, the tradition emerged from the Indian subcontinent. And so many of our temples and, and sacred rivers uh, mountains, all of those things are there. And so even when I meet Hindus who are like fourth or fifth generation Guyanese or from Trinidad, there's still a, a longing or or kind of an eye towards India as a sacred homeland. So do we want the well-being of India? Absolutely, uh, because so many of our major temples and pilgrimage sites and things like that are there. Um The second part of that is that where something that's happening in India is going to reflect on Hindu Americans here, we will try to speak up on. Um, And so we've been critical of the Indian government, or or if Hindus in India are not being treated fairly. So uh, we'll speak up on that too. And so Kashmir is a perfect example of that. You have, um, you know, the indigenous population of Kashmiri pundits that were cleansed from the valley in 1989, 1990. That was the last of a number of exoduses of of Kashmiri pundits, 350,000 of them. Um, We don't believe that the Indian government has taken enough um, action and enough steps to rectify that situation, um, to repatriate them safely. And so uh, we're going to speak on those types of issues, but we're not going to talk about every single issue um, that occurs in India. Mm. And so would you consider, I mean, this is like a stupid dichotomy probably, but um, would you consider HAF an ethnic organization or a religious organization? (laughs) Um, I think we are a advocacy organization that serves a religious community. All right, so I mean, it kind of how lawyerly is that? Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of sounds like I, because I guess I, you know, a religious, uh, a religious organization to me sounds like a temple, or you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not that. We are not a temple. We are not a religious organization per se. Our role is not to promote religion. Our role is to um, create an environment in which religion can flourish. Um, and, you know, for religion to flourish, I think there needs to be understanding and freedom. Well, so, you know, one of the questions people are are asking is, uh, uh, you know, I actually like, I kind of appreciate the, uh, you know, reader feedback here because, you know, I have some general questions, but some of these specific ones are interesting to me. Like, um, so, I mean, you work with interfaith organizations or you work with, and so, you know, um, uh, what was that? Uh, 
I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not saying that, like, you know, you agree with any of this, but, uh, you know, I have, like, Indian American friends, and whether they're religious or not, if they're Hindu, it's like, you know, um, you know, the rule is, like, um, for marriage, it's like, no blacks, no Muslims, you know? So, like, the, the issue with Islam is always, um, you know, I feel like, you know, my, my family is, is Muslim, and they have certain prejudices, but since I'm not, uh, since I'm atheist, it doesn't really impact me too much. Like I don't think about it too much, but, um, and then, and then like, you know, when I talk to my, my Indian American friends, they're usually pretty secular, but their parents have really strong opinions on Islam. A lot of it is, has to do with back home and you know, that, that baggage. But so here in the United States, you are an ethnic minority in the United States. And, you know, like I told you, like, you know, my family's Muslim. I don't know. Like I know more than more about Hinduism than the typical person, but I don't know that much, but I'm being, you know, it's like I, you know, I've had like Muslim friends who, um, you know, like Muslim American friends are like, well, you know, at the end of the day, you're a Muslim. So you need to like stand with whatever the Islamic or like the Muslim political. And, you know, I do laugh about that because like I've been mistaken for Hindu more often than I have as Muslim. So does that mean that I should stand with the Hindus? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and so, um, you know, you have like all this like cultural baggage and then you're a minority in the United States, just like Muslims. And sure. even, even though it's not politicized, like, I mean, how have your interactions been with like Muslim organizations during interfaith events? I, so I think it's important that we find our places of, of shared concerns and work together. Um, and, you know, that, that's not to say that we have to forget or set aside all of our differences. Um, but I think that those are the places where we can at least um, start conversations. Uh, so, for instance, um, for issues such as separation of church and state, um, there have been uh, Baptist groups, uh, Muslim groups and others where we have all come together where Certainly, theologically, we are not on the same page, um, but we will come together um, for for the interest of ensuring that um, the state is not endorsing one particular religion or, you know, endorsing religion over non-religion. So, I think that that this work um, has allowed us those types of opportunities um, to work with people that we may not necessarily agree with on all things. As far as like Hindu Muslim relations, look there there is a history um, that there's there's um, there's a history that has um, beautiful syncretic uh, results of that have manifested as art and music and um, you know philosophy when we start looking at you know Sufi traditions um, that I think are worth celebrating but I also think that there is a history that isn't always positive that is not discussed often enough and um, I don't know what platform it can be but how can we have these discussions of the past without it necessarily, sounding alarms for, oh, well, now this is going to give justification to mistreat people today. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily um, the end result of talking about, you know, violence or, or forced conversions or, or whatever that might have been historically. I don't think that that needs to be um, the end result or that it opens the door to that. But what too often happens today is that there's if there's any sort of critique 
it's immediately kind of tamped down as, oh, you're being Islamophobic. Um, and, and I don't know that, I think that worsens relations uh, because, um, you know, legitimate concerns are not able to be expressed. Um, while on the flip side, um, you know, Hindus are, are very often, I think you just have to open up any page of the New York Times and um, their coverage on India, at least, um, and, and on Hindus, um, in, in my perspective, um, is going to leave you with, with a picture of, you know, Hindus just gone wild and um, Hindus behaving badly. All right. So, um, you know, one thing that I want to talk about, like, alliances and perceptions and if you have any idea of where it comes from, because, you know, one thing I'll tell you is um, I have some friends in the ex-Muslim community and they went to, you know, kind of hand out some flyers at some Muslim American event. Like it was a, a pretty big event and they had some pretty um, civil conversations actually with the people going at the event, but there were some um, Antifa that showed up, I guess. And they started getting in their face as white supremacists because they were against the Muslims, supposedly. But most of the Muslims that were at the conference were a little bit more on the conservative side, just in terms of the way they dressed. And they actually asked the ex-Muslim atheists what was up with those smelly people that looked really hostile. Um, I'm telling you this story because it's a little ludicrous, and I don't really understand what's happened in the last 20 years when it seems like the far left in the United States, at least, is extremely, I'm going to use the word, Islamophilic. And then um, if you're a Hindu, if you're a believing Hindu, I actually don't know what the genealogy of like where and how and what happened of like Hinduism and a lot of motifs associated with Hinduism being far right. So, um, you know, before I let you go and like, you know, give your explanation, I will tell you that I used the word Kali Yuga on Twitter once and someone responded to me and said, oh, isn't that an alt-right concept? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, we deal with this with the swastika uh, all the time uh, where, uh you know, a, a Hindu family reaches out and says, hey, my HOA is not letting me put up uh, a swastika because, uh, you know, neighbors complained. Um, you know, I think part of it, and I, I would highly recommend um, you have Vishwa Adluri uh, on, on Brown Pundits to talk to him about some of the earliest studies of India and, and the roots of Indology. And he talks about um, kind of the German quest for finding identity and 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 how they kind of landed upon India scriptures and how I think there's there's probably something there in terms of why um, you know Aryan nation and the swastika and all of these symbols. If you heard Kali Yuga, that's a first for me. I didn't know that um, that. Um, he would probably be far more um, aware and well-read on on what some of the roots of that might be, and there there is something there for sure in terms of the appropriation. Um, but there's, I think, historical roots as to how and why that might have happened. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the weirder weirder phenomenon of of this you know particular time. Um, so. 
I guess, like, you know, I'm going to let you go, but um, I, one, like, parting question, I mean, in your role at AJF, like, what has been the most surprising thing for you? Ah, oh, let's see. Um, you know, early on, I would say um, one of the things that surprised me, we filed an amicus brief before the U.S. Supreme Court um, on an issue dealing with the public display of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, as second generation, or I don't know if you call, I refer to myself as second generation. My parents naturalized, so they are the first. But I know that's kind of a, a, a touchy subject for many. But anyways, as a second generation Hindu-American, I thought, wow, you know, this is really our kind of coming to age. Um, we're filing as Americans, um, standing up for the constitutional right of religious freedom. And um, the community reaction was, why are you rocking the boat? you know, we're guests in this country. So that was kind of eye-opening for me that, you know, in addition to having um, having a responsibility to work outward and, and be a bridge between the Hindu-American community and mainstream, we also had to um, kind of bring up to speed many people in our community in terms of, you know, what um, you know, the founding principles of America and what rights do we have as Americans. So that was definitely um, eye-opening for me. Um, the second thing I think is probably more recent. Um, and I think maybe I'm as perplexed as others are in terms of just an intolerance towards different ideas. Um, I just, I worry about um, the future of our democracy um, as um, as the environment becomes more and more polarized and people are just engaging in echo chambers, um, I didn't I didn't anticipate that kind of um, bleeding into our work, but it does on a probably near daily basis um, where we're trying to explain our stance to one end or the other, um, and no one's happy. Uh, so I'm I'm hoping. Um, that it this is just part of kind of the cycles that different societies have gone through in the past and that there will be something that opens up where um, people are more open to differences. I think it's key to our democracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, definitely on the same page with you um, on that. Well, um, Suhak, thanks for, um, you know, coming on the broadcast. It's been really enlightening. I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. Thanks so much. I really enjoy your podcast, and I also learn quite a bit whenever I listen. Awesome. Tune in next week for Brown Cat.